This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome back, every Bendy Body. This is the Bendy Bodies podcast, and I'm your host and founder, Dr. Linda Bluestein, the Hypermobility MD. This is going to be a great episode, so be sure to stick around until the very end so you don't miss any of our special hypermobility hacks. As always, this information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for personalized medical advice. Today, I am so excited to have Dr. Patricia Stott with me. Dr. Stott has many, many talents, including being a doctor of physical therapy, certified athletic trainer, and certified hand therapist. She is trained in visceral manipulation, neural manipulation, fascial counterstrain, craniosacral therapy, and is certified in Reiki. She is currently enrolled in a PhD program for integrative medicine. It has been so wonderful to be able to collaborate with Dr. Stott on various different patients, as well as share clinic space in Arvada, Colorado, where we both see patients. We also had another great collaboration when we gave a presentation at the EDS Society Conference in August in Dublin on integrative approaches to pain management. Dr. Stott, hello and welcome to Bendy Bodies. So much for having me. We've talked about doing this for such a long time. Finally, I have a feeling this is going to be the first of several conversations. So if you're listening to this episode and you think, oh gosh, but I had other questions, send them in. We'll, we'll catch, we'll catch up on them next time. So that'd be great. Yeah. Awesome. Um, can you start out by telling us how you became interested in EDS and related conditions? Sure. Um, I will try to consolidate as much as I can because I have hypermobile EDS um, and I've been blessed to be able to experience most of the coexisting conditions myself, um, which I actually find as a benefit into being able to treat it in my own patients because I have the experience of dealing with it at some point in my life. Um, and that, that was kind of my story in coming up and why I got into the field and as to why I really wanted to specialize in it. Um, you know, I, I started getting advice from some very, very amazing specialists over the years when I was younger and it was conflicting. Um, and it was about my physical body, what I could do with it, what I shouldn't do with it. And um, it didn't actually match what I was doing with my body that was actually helpful. So I made it my own personal mission. Um, and it became a mission to help others when um, I had and developed my own family. Um, and I gave birth to two biological zebras. And we've kind of gone through the same thing with them. And I didn't want them to have so many questions or not have as many answers uh, or you know, have more answers than than I had back then. So I, I just wanted to be part of the voice to help explore the what's and the why's and the how we can make this better. Sure, that makes sense. I like the biological zebras. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And in terms of head, we're going to talk today about um, upper cervical instability. And you were one of the authors on that fantastic paper that came out. Um, do you remember what month that was? Was that February? Something I like believe that? it was February of this year. Okay. And I know within, I feel like within a very short period of time, there were like 20 plus thousand views of that article. I mean, it was, it was clearly something that a lot of people were really, really interested in. And people are still talking about that article. You were one of several people that was involved in that uh, very, very long process, I'm sure, of involving many, many meetings and volunteering your time, right, to discuss and decide what you would have as some various different guidelines and things. So we're going to talk about that today, but not, not necessarily in the context of the article per se, but I really want to dive into how you handle these conditions in your clinical practice, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say that that is a great reference that the article has a checklist that the patients and providers can use to really screen out if this is something that we think is a possibility. Um, and also treatment strategies as well. While we're not dictating exactly what to do, there's guidelines of the reasons behind why we would want to do something. <laughs> sure. And we'll make sure to link that article in the show notes in case people did not know what article we were talking about. We'll definitely link that so they can access that as well. So can you start out by telling us you have a uh, how and why you evaluate neck and head pain in the clinic and why this is such an important topic for zebras? 
Yeah, I think it's just an important topic because, uh, you know, if we thought about even a decade ago and we talked about cranial cervical instability or upper cervical instability, there really was no mild or moderate cases. Um, if you didn't have a severe case, you weren't treated as though you had instability. And it's really like any other joint in the body. We're not going to ignore a mild ankle sprain um, because it doesn't fit into our severe category. Um, and we're realizing that there is actually a much larger population that might have something on whether it's the anatomical instability or the symptomatic instability, which we can talk about um, that they're somewhere on that spectrum. And the earlier that we get in to help them in recognizing it, uh, the more likely we're actually gonna have more benefit in treatment. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that's, a, that's an interesting analogy. You think that in the past, we were only acknowledging the more serious cases Historically. I think that the more serious cases were taken seriously, I think is what it was. I think that, you know, we just have this misconception that craniocervical instability means that you can't function. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there, there is a difference when it comes to the, the hypermobile population. We know that there's anatomical structural differences between um, somebody who has a symptomatic hypermobility and, and the general population. So it makes them more prone to developing a symptomatic case. And then, yes, we have this stuff layered on top of it that can make symptoms feel worse and are completely valid that might not be directly associated with the instability, but they're going to make you feel worse if you have upper cervical instability. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and what do you find most commonly in your patients with symptomatic joint hypermobility? Um, that layered presentation. <laughs> it, gosh, it's, um, you know, and I, I would say maybe occasionally, and I, you know, we're always going to be wrong at some point, but I just, in my practice, have not met anybody that has upper cervical instability that doesn't have something else, um, whether it's a contributing factor, a coexisting condition that's exacerbating things. There's always something else, and um, I get excited when that happens because the more that we have to work on, the more that we mm -hmm. have to work on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I do too. I mean, it sounds funny. I had somebody the other day with a bunch of abnormal labs, and I said, "Well, this is great because now we have some." targets and, and things like that. Although we know that not everything shows up in labs and imaging. And, and so we have to address the patient and treat the patient that's in front of us always. So, so do you think that your findings in the patients that you treat, does it differ depending on their diagnosis? I mean, some people probably come to you and they don't even have a diagnosis of EDS or HSD. And actually, well, maybe you could start out by briefly explaining the difference between those two. And I guess maybe you would have several buckets of patients. Maybe you have some where you suspect that they have a condition of, I'm sorry, I should back up. Maybe some you suspect that they have symptomatic joint hypermobility or you say, okay, you have symptomatic joint hypermobility. Some are going to come to you and they're going to already have an EDS diagnosis. And some are going to come to you and have an HSD diagnosis amongst those three groups. Do you notice any differences? Not in presentation or management. Okay. No. And, you know, the, the differences are, are really just a label. Um, mm -hmm. There's what it is, is whether we're talking about a different type of EDS as well, or hypermobile uh, spectrum disorder, or HEDS, or a suspicion of, you know, there's something going on with the extracellular matrix that's making your structural composition wonky. Mm -hmm. And that carries on through the body in different ways for, for each different person. So even when you look at, you know, and I guess I sh should say, when I say that there's no difference, every Every single person is different. That's mm -hmm. what the commonality is, is that um, everybody is so different. And what gets them to the spot by the time that they sit down in my office, that is what is important to me is their whole story, because their presentation has to do with their entire past, what their body's been exposed to, the injuries that they've had. So, you know, there, there's not a difference because we treat them as an individual, right? But, and I'll say that most of the patients that, that come to my office have already tried the, the standard physical therapy. And if that would have worked, um, then we're probably not dealing with symptomatic joint hypermobility because that responds a little bit different. So, you know, the, the patients that come into my office and they're already suspecting or somebody has told them, um, they're probably there because things haven't worked before. So, you know, anecdotally, if we just have somebody that's hypermobile and doesn't have the symptomatic piece, yeah, I might actually treat them differently than somebody that has the symptomatic piece along with it because of the responsiveness to treatments. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so say someone does come in and they have mild to moderate upper cervical instability, where do you usually begin? And especially in light of what you just said, 
about the fact that they've often tried a lot of other things first? So a lot of where I start is very much subjective because through our conversation is actually where we're going to get a lot of the information as to the severity of their presentation. And this is what's important is that when we go to treat upper cervical instability, we're actually looking at the severity of presentation, not the severity of instability. And that is Mm. because this is a layered condition. So I can have somebody that has mild signs of upper cervical instability, but their inflammatory process is out of control. Their autonomic nervous system is not registering and giving output correctly. So if I touch somebody that has mild upper cervical instability anatomically, but they're having a severe reaction and presentation, I'm going to make them very upset. Mm -hmm. So that's where you've got to go through the subjective and determine what type of severity presentation, not instability, but the severity of presentation that we're looking at. So how reactive are they? How often do they have flare-ups? How quickly can they come out of those flare-ups? So this is all outlined in that article. But that's how we look at it. And we don't look at the patient as like, oh, well, your Bayesian axial interval was, you know, was more than two millimeters change when you went to extension. Although that's part of the story. Absolutely. It gives us some information. Um, but we really have to respect the severity of presentation. So that's a lot of subjective. So I typically don't touch my patients that I suspect have an upper cervical problem for a while, for two or three sessions. Um, and then it's really figuring out these contributing factors. And we could really talk for days on this because everybody's contributing factor is different. So just because you have a diagnosis, I could be sending one person for vision rehab. I could be sending another person for lung rehab. I could be sending another person for pelvic stability work, another person to get cleared for a CSF leak. The list can go on and on and on as to the things that can exacerbate or even cause upper cervical instability. So that's that's really the understanding the layers first um, and then the contributing factors. And those are the places to start. Um, they're not going to have a normalized reaction to whatever treatment you are as a provider unless their system is regulated. So it's that mast cell piece and that, that autonomic nervous system piece that you really have to understand what's happening in the individual before you can ever lay hands on them. Um, and then as for, you know, testing wise, I actually don't do too much testing on my patients um, outside of maybe palpations, seeing where the, the C1 is placed. I do, I have wonderful center out here. I know we are a bit spoiled with some of what we have out here, but in Colorado, we have um, upright MRI um, and they do wonderful readings, beautiful reports um, that are really quite accurate that I use more for verification to see, hey, are the numbers matching the way that you're presenting? Because then again, it adds to the story. If you're only showing these mild numbers that we would consider a mild positive diagnosis, maybe a little bit of impingement, but your your presentation is severe, then again, maybe we don't treat the neck right away. And that's where the second part of figuring out how to work with somebody is. After we figure out how do I need to approach this person, um, what level of severity are they in, then it comes to how should I treat them. And I'll tell you this, this bottom-up model, and um, for those who don't know, Susan Chalela is just a, a wonderful expert with the upper cervical spine, is that she doesn't start with the cervical spine. She starts in building the base up. Mm-hmm. And this is what I try to explain to people that um, if you take a giant bowling ball that has a wobbly sit onto Jenga, if you set up the Jenga game, <laughs> put a bowling ball that's wobbling back and forth on top of that, that Jenga stack that you have built, and then you start pulling things from the bottom. You can do whatever you want to that bowling ball, but it's always going to wobble if you haven't fixed the bottom of your Jenga. So you really gotta have a stable base in order to have a stable head, which is again, like wonderful. We have more ways to work with these patients and and easier access points that aren't as triggering to working directly on the neck. So, you know, from, from a model of how we would approach somebody anatomically, it really is this bottom to top. Are they stable enough to hold the head up there? If I try to make them hold their head up there, And then the next step of understanding how to work with these patients, which kind of goes along with anything that you're working on, is are they aligned? Um, 
we really need alignment all the way through that spine because we're not just talking about like C, C0, the head through that third cervical vertebrae, the whole spine is attached. So mm -hmm. what is their alignment like? Because we don't want to start any strengthening or any work unless they're in alignment. Mm. Um, not only the alignment piece, but then the proprioception, because if you start having somebody do these isometrics and strengthening, but they have no concept of where their head is in space, we're really not doing them a service. We're not teaching them anything. We're just having them do things. So you really need this alignment piece, this proprioceptive piece, and then something else. And that something else is going to vary from person to person because, again, it depends on what they need. What is their contributing factor? What are we strengthening it? Is it really, is it a core problem? Is it a shoulder problem? But that's where you can get into the specific strengthening after you have the alignment and then the proprioception. So I was smiling as you were saying that because I, I think it was the episode that was released today that where I was talking with Dr. Chopra about the lower extremities and he used the Jenga analogy also. <laughs> yeah, it's a perfect analogy. And yeah. that's where like, you know, I talk about the base of the spine, but once we put the person in a vertical position and standing, then we have to consider the, the pelvis to the, the toes. So, and then how the foot interacts with the ground too underneath mm -hmm. it. So, but again, like what wonderful places to be able to look at to figure out, does the individual have a leg dysfunction or is it pel like, it's just, it's great. It's just, it opens your eyes to a world of possibilities that things haven't worked for you before. Mm -hmm. I, I, as you're saying this, I'm thinking that to me, one of the big problems is that our insurance companies say somebody does go to, to tr standard traditional physical therapy insurance is going to authorize them to work on a body part, right? And then you have to keep filling out the forms and they keep having to get authorization and you have to improve enough, but not too much in order for them to keep getting those visits authorized, right? And you're discouraged as a physical therapist from looking at the body as a whole, right? If you're, if you're in the insurance system, the insurance company cares about how the shoulder is functioning in this particular case, they don't really care about how the whole body is functioning, but it does make sense that the whole body is connected and that if you're really knowledgeable about these conditions, that you would really understand that for people with connective tissue that doesn't function as strongly as it might be in some other people. And so to me, that's a big part of the problem is our insurance system and how they try to take the bodies apart while also the fact that they love to reimburse for surgeries and procedures, but not for like the approach that you take is um, sounds to me very logical and very important. And yeah, you could do all this work on, on the neck and not make any progress because the problem lies at least in large part in the pelvis or in the lower extremities or something. I don't know. Does that make sense or do you? It does. And I'll say that's that's some of the problem that and I know it's frustrating for patients out there that um, a lot of us who do specialize have stepped into self-pay practice. Mm -hmm. And it is to kind of unleash our reins a bit in being able to treat the areas that we do feel uh, should be treated. And there is a lot of monitoring and rules and regulations and things like that. I will say that sometimes with some insurance companies, you can provide justification. That justification does involve having research. And this is where like cue the circus music, because Linda, <laughs> I know that you know this, it is hard to get published when there oh. isn't already research out there and yes. you're trying to offer the new research and you just hear, well, you know what, that's, we haven't heard much about that. So it's just not interesting or it's not relevant or whatever it might be. So. Um, I was just, I was so excited for this, this upper cervical piece to come out because, you know, it's really the start of, we're trying to put in more research into the understanding of the why, like this is more complicated and more simple than we think. Like, I like saying that, but it's like, it really is like, it's not just the upper cervical spine. It could be something that you've been dealing with for years and didn't know that it was related. So there can be justification for some insurance companies, you can explain to them. Um, but again, we need more people to come out with the research as to the why. So hopefully there's others reading, you know, and I love collaborations. That's why I love this, because I don't know everything. Um, nobody out there knows everything. But if I yep. talk to somebody and give them some information, they could excel in their own practice with their own skills and figure out other things that I don't know. 
And that's where we need these minds to develop and start doing this research so that we have an understanding of like, yeah, it could be caused by a lot of different things. But when I found that it was related to this in people, I did this treatment and it got better. So we do need some people to start writing up some case studies and things like that to be able to help us out on, especially the insurance front. I really wish it was easier to publish because that is such a huge problem. I mean, it, it really seems like for people like you and me who are, you know, primarily in private practice, it's, we don't have, you know, a, a big university that's supporting us and doing all the administrative tasks and things like that. And I think that's one thing to me that was really fabulous about this group that you were involved with. You know, you all donated your time and it was getting together the minds of the people who treat this population all across the world, right? This was five continents or something like that. Um, so yeah, we had coordinating a time to meet was incredible. We had a couple, I think it was 4am meetups on my time. It was, but I'll tell you like just to sit down with people that can carry the conversation within the symptomatic hypermobility world and just to be validated by the fact that, Hey, that's working for me too. And that it's very different from what we are taught in physical therapy school. Mm. It is very different in, in what we are taught to apply, how we are instructed to fix people very different. So, um, yeah, we need to keep going with these collaborations. I know it's, mm-hmm. it's tough and we're all busy, <laughs> but if we can continue the conversation, we'll have even more treatment ideas out there. Definitely. I, I just finished reading, um, Peter, Dr. Peter Atia's book, Outlive the Science and Art of Longevity. And he talks in that book about evidence-based medicine and evidence-informed medicine. And what you're describing is very much an, an informed evidence-informed medicine type approach where, you know, yeah, we have some evidence from double-blind randomized controlled trials, but obviously in some things that's really hard to study. So you have to look at people's clinical experience and, you know, you're you're still using evidence, but, you know, I think it's uh, a really great way to look at evidence in a way that is maybe differently than what some people think we should be looking at, or we're not restricting ourselves. People are suffering, right? People are really, really suffering. So for us to say, nope, we're not going to help you until we have a double-blind randomized controlled trial that tells us that we need to do A over B. You know, I mean, basically to me, that's the bottom line is getting groups together like this or saying, look, what can we do for people? What's working? What's not? And, and, and starting now and not waiting Yeah, no, I think that you're absolutely right. And I have to sidetrack a little bit, you know, we're trying to look at all of these conditions that are, I'll say more symptomatic, or they seem more prevalent in this, in this, um, this population. And um, I did have a couple specialists fly out last week. And that was the exact conversation that we had by the end of it, like, well, we just found out all of this amazing, wonderful stuff. We can't publish it. Because it's just nobody's ready for it. You know, we had Ron Hruska of the, he's the founder of the Postural Restoration Institute and Amy Morris, another PT from the East Coast flew out. And we looked at these patients that are having these upper GI or Malsy type issues that are going on. And it was just fascinating because we found what was happening and we really have a definition for it right now. But for each single person, it was different as to what, what the driving factor was. And we just realized there's no way that that we can publish this in research. So, you know, we've got to use our different outlets. We've got to use um, just to to share our experiences. I mean, it was such a wonderful experience and all that we learned that I might have to take it to a book or I might have to take (laughs) it to a blog post. And, you know, until somebody takes that and then adapts it into case studies and things, we're kind of stuck for now. Or or a podcast interview. (laughs) So... So I think that sounds like a great conversation that maybe you and I could have with one or both of them. You know, maybe you could sit in the guest co-host seat for that conversation. I'd love to. It, when you... was, it would be fascinating. What we found yeah. out is fascinating. And it was kind of like one of those dumb moments. Like, how could we not realize this was happening in this population? And it changes the entire homeostasis of the body. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. It was incredible stuff. Yeah. Because there's going to be people who hear, wait. Malsy, Mal's median arcuate ligament syndrome type presentation. And obviously you had some great conversations about that. So we will definitely have to follow up on that one. Yeah, please. 
Super, super interesting. Okay. So I was asking you how you start with somebody with mild to moderate upper cervical instability. And I'm going to see if I recap accurately. The first two to three sessions or so, when you say you, you don't touch them, you mean you physically are not touching their body or are you physically not touching their neck? Or can you elaborate a little bit about that? So um, I'm typically doing a lot of subjective, especially if, if we're just meeting. I need to know what your body has been through. So I might touch your C1 to see where it's rotated maximum for, for the session. I don't mind touching down lower to look at the alignment of the, the pelvis. I, I love to look feet on the grounds all the way up to the head. And I look at that while somebody, typically while somebody is standing. And then what happens when you lay down? What did gravity do to you in between there? Um, because it could be a gravitational problem, which would indicate more of a pressure problem, which we can talk about at that Malsey talk that we have. But it could be a pressure regulation problem rather than a true orthopedic problem that they're dealing with. So, yeah, it's it's subjective mostly for the first little bit, um, but I, I will palpate and I will try to see what's going on. But I typically rely and I do have a lot of um, background in dealing with patients with upper cervical instability. So I don't think that's for everybody, but I just can get so much information by asking the right questions mm -hmm. and, um, you know, going down those rabbit holes, especially those those neurovascular ones and neurological ones and trying to figure out if they're correlated to the upper cervical instability with head movement or position, or is this something that's just neurological? Sure. So when you're saying subjective, you're meaning more from taking a history than from doing the physical part, which, which we divide that into subjective and objective, but a lot of the listeners might not be familiar with that terminology. So I just want to clarify. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a lot more talking, a lot more, because I want to hear the last thing I want to do is touch somebody before I find out that they are reactive to everything. <laughs> and mm -hmm. even like, the smallest touch or manipulation sends them into a, a neurological flare up for days. So I want to know all of that first. I want to know how their body is going to respond to my treatments. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then once you've had several sessions with them and now you're getting a better sense, it sounds like the path diverges significantly depending on if you've determined that this is more problems that lie within the pelvic floor versus the autonomic nervous system versus postural, other postural issues, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, what we're going to give them in clinic and the things that we're going to have them do very much, they're very different from mild to moderate to severe cases. And, you know, all of that is actually, it's, it's written out in the article as well mm -hmm. as to, Hey, if you, especially the don't do's are in that article as well. Right. So for our, for our physical therapists that are like, well, let me test and see if you have instability. Please don't um, <laughs> assume that it's already there because we, we are going to see a neurovascular response if you trigger something. So, um, so don't, you know, the, the tests are within the, um, uh, the, the article itself, which ones to avoid and which ones might be safe. But again, you always want to err on the side of caution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So let's say you started going down one of those paths and you're still not making progress. What are some of the next more advanced things that you might be looking at and trying? So um, I don't know everything and I might not be the best fit for everybody. I might not have what they need. So, you know, my first thing is, and I, I have, I still have very few people that if we're talking about this upper cervical instability population that I have that I can refer out to, but I do have maybe two providers in the area that I'll say like, Hey, just go see what they can do for you. If it's something different. Um, you know, the, the next step after that would be a talk about possibly regenerative medicine, because I still very rarely do I talk about anything surgical with my patients because the majority of patients actually do very well if we figure out what's driving the upper cervical instability and then rehab it appropriately. Mm -hmm. um, so we usually don't have to have that talk. So those would be my two big mm -hmm. talks of who else are we going to see? Um, I guess the other big talk would be as well, do we need to rule anything out that we've missed? So is there anything else that could be driving the upper cervical instability that there's no way I'm going to do anything for, um, depending on the person, because there are actually, there are some ways that you can treat cerebrospinal fluid, but I still want to know if they would have a leak that might be pulling and putting pressure on the spine and causing um, things to shift up higher. 
I would want to know if they had, um, you know, any signs of a diseased phylum or cord tethering lower in the spine, because that's going to pull and it changes the whole pull all the way down the spine. Do we do anything about it that's, you know, um, you know, super invasive? Not necessarily, but if we know that there is a diseased phylum or cord tethering that's present, we talk about inflammation more. So it just, again, it's, it's just redirecting at that point. And it might not be me, it might be another specialist. Um, and I always, you know, for all those people out there that, that do specialize and do really get locked on to their patient care, it's okay to refer out. You just have to make sure that you trust the person that you're referring to. Um, they just might have the skills to help the, the person out that you just don't have. Oh, and it's, I remember when I first started opening my clinic and I was so feeling like I, I didn't know enough, you know, and uh, Dr. Chopra kept telling me, you can't possibly know everything and you have to have a team. There's no way, there's no way that you could possibly do, take care of this population of people without having a network of people that you can have, you know, that you can send them to, to evaluate for different things or address different things. And, and I, and I'm real, I realized very quickly that he was completely right about that. Yeah. And you might, over time, you might start to absorb some of what the other people know, mm -hmm. but it's, you're right. There's just, especially with this population, it's a connective tissue disorder. You have to know head to toe in and out how all of those integrate and interact with each other. If you want to see long-term progress, that's literally knowing everything. And like at a cellular level <laughs> in the body, that's just impossible. It's, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's the exact opposite of when you go to the dermatologist and they don't care about any of your history except for your skin cancers and they literally will do the exam focusing on your skin and that's it. Like that's it that's super super focused cuz that's their specialty. But for us it's completely different cuz everything is connected. Yeah, and I I still I get so excited when I learn something that I didn't know or didn't connect the dots um, because again it gives a different avenue to think about people and like when I think I was at the end of the road like aha it's this cord tethering that's what it is but then it's caused by something wait tell me more can, <laughs> we can rehab it and we might not and we're working on that stuff as well but we might be able to actually rehab out of this depending on the presentation it just it blows my mind i'm always just fascinated and humbled by how much i don't know about the human body it's incredible yeah, yeah exactly exactly i i feel the same way so in terms of strategies that people can try for getting back to upper cervical instability and specific strategies, are there certain ones in your experience that tend to be most effective? Well, you can mark this down for literally anything in this population, but especially something that might cause a neurovascular response. Um, but it's the precision and the intention and the treatment that's for literally everything in this population. Don't throw the kitchen sink at this person. If you think that you know their C1 is rotated because they have a lung issue, please just work on the lung. Give them one or two things. We don't need to be overstimulating the system, especially if they're hyper-responsive to things. So I'm all about less is more. Let's figure out what are the one or two things that is going to help this person, whether it's manually or with their home program, um, that would be helpful. And of course, working away from that area, um, I might work on, you know, somebody's lumbar spine up to their thoracic spine for 40 minutes and do one thing on the cervical spine. But it's really about precision. You know, it's that why again, why are they having upper cervical instability? Because Again, if it's the if it's more of a mast cell systemic reaction and it's causing this neurological response that's happening up there, you can play with that cervical spine and give them all the homework that you want. But until you calm down that primary agent that's driving their reactions, it's not going to do much. So you really have to be precise. What is it that we're trying to do? That is my goal. And until that is resolved, I'm not going to move on to the next thing. So I really, I break this down in stages for people like, Hey, I need to see your responses. Calm down first, but maybe I'll work on your dura and maybe in another area to try to relieve some of this. So again, it's, it's different for each person, but I will repeat over and over. It's the precision and the intention. What are we really trying to do with the individual in front of us? It's very gentle techniques. I always say it's, you know, if you look at that osteopathic way of doing things, um, it's kind of like working with 
I was going to say kids, but let's be honest, some adults too, sometimes they have to think it's their own idea. Hmm. So when you go into the body, you don't want to tell it, well, go here because that's where I want you to go. But if you come in and you say, well, I think this is a better idea, and that's the way that your hands are moving, of guiding or releasing and allowing the emotion to open up, and you convince it, see, wasn't that was all your idea. That was a great <laughs> way to move back into place, C1. You know, it's, it's, it's letting the body reclaim its position because when we start to move it back into place is when, you know, we as humans can feel this too. Even though you told me that's good, it doesn't feel normal yet. I don't like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's going gonna, it's gonna to move out. You know, so I, I think it's really um, this less is more. How precise can we be? What are we mm -hmm. trying to do? Are we making sure that we're not missing something? So, you know, I'd, I'd say for those that are, that are working with somebody that has upper cervical instability and really have been focused on, but I think I should be working here and not on the upper cervical spine. Hey, go for it. <laughs> you know, it's that could just trust yourself on it. I think that we so get focused on, you know, it has to be upper cervical spine. So if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, that could also explain why, you know, if you, uh, a lot of my patients, I don't know about your patients, but and obviously we have patients in common um, as well. So as I'm saying, mine and yours is, and the ones we have in common, a lot of people do go to chiropractors or go to osteopaths where they've had some higher velocity type uh, manipulations and higher velocity work. And so as you're saying that, I'm thinking, well, boy, that's maybe where, uh, obviously you can, number one, you can cause actual damage if you, if you do that on somebody who has connective tissue that is not as strong as you would expect. And, and two, you can end up not being able to hold that. Let's say you do get it in a better position, but you won't, able, you won't be able to hold it because of the way that it was accomplished. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's, um, although I don't get asked this question a lot, I get told this statement a lot is my C1 didn't hold. Mm. And of course it didn't because it doesn't want to be there. <laughs> you know, so again, we're talking about the whole Jenga, this very tall Jenga chain that's been built up underneath it. And again, if you're trying to constantly pop that, that top piece of Jenga back in, but you have the wobbly pieces down below, then it's just not going to work. And I have run into some chiropractors that do adjust the, the sacrum, the pelvis, lower part of the spine. I'm okay with that. I'm also okay with symptomatic relief. I'm, I'm up for any conversation with anybody to figure out how to make you feel better. Like right. our, we, we don't know what everybody's timeline is. So I always let people know, like your timeline is never wrong. Like if you're thinking about doing something for a treatment, it's never wrong, consider it an experiment and then we'll regroup. So, um, you know, but it's not going to hold your C1 isn't going to hold if something else is pulling it out of whack and not to, um, to become more complicated, but just to show all the wonderful things that you could work on and how to think outside the box. You know, we talk about one of the things that we do for dental uh, movement of C1 for our especially moderate and more than that severe cases of upper cervical instability. And sometimes this population, the severe presentations can't do it is we use our eyes to move C1. Mm. So, our C1 actually follows where our eyes go. So you can use that as a muscle energy check technique. However, pause there. Because <laughs> if you have a patient that has visual spatial issues and mm -hmm. they are neglecting their left side because they have visual spatial issues and a weaker left eye, their vision goes this way because mm -hmm. that's where it likes to focus to the right side. So if it's focusing to the right side, you have a constant pull and dominance to your right side, which your C1 will follow. So you got to kind of look at everything. Please don't exhaust the, the list. That's why, you know, I typically don't talk neurosurgeon with my patients. I've had a, a few referrals out to them for a consultation, but there's just a world of access points that we might have missed. So, I mean, it's, it's crazy to think, you know, but if, I think that a lot of people can resonate with this. The, the body looks for stability everywhere, absolutely <laughs> everywhere. So we're talking visual stability. I mean, that is what helps feedback to our upper cervical spine of where it should be held in space. And if our vision is not stable, your body will find another place to make up for that. Mm -hmm. So it's the same for the jaw. If you can't 
bite fully, if you have an occlusion issue, you're getting no proprioceptive feedback and that goes straight into the upper cervical spine. So again, there, there's just, there's so many things that you could look into in, in treatment options. It's, it's not exhaustive. It's, there's really a world out there. So I just, I always tell people, hang on. And especially for the patients, if you feel like I've had this weird wonky thing and I also have upper cervical instability, trust your gut if you feel like you should get that checked out as well, because it might be playing into your body trying to stabilize, especially that visual, spatial, proprioceptive component that is our head. That's fascinating about the eyes and C1. And because I feel like I, I hear a lot of people say, I either suspect or have diagnosed upper cervical instability. I had physical therapy that was kind of directed at strengthening the next neck flexors and, you know, kind of some of the more traditional things, some of the exercises that you were demonstrating as we're sitting here on video. And for those that are not, we didn't demonstrate anything too major, but if people are listening, they can always check out the video too. But um, I feel like sometimes people think, okay, if that didn't work, then the next option is surgery. And I love that you're saying, no, there's a lot of other things in between. Now, obviously, there's well, there are certain exceptions to that because people are so unstable, perhaps. But for by far the majority of people, right, there's all kinds of these other things that they could try in between. Absolutely. But, yeah. Absolutely. But I will say, if you are so unstable that you need to have surgery done, you still have to work on the other stuff. Because the pull doesn't change after you're fixated. Mm. So you will now be fixated and you'll have the same pulls in your body to try to maintain visual mm. stability. And we haven't even gotten to the pressure system. But I mean, really, head to toe, there could be something feeding into this. Um, so whether or not you are going to get fused or you have been fused, for those of you that are listening, if there was a driving factor before that nobody ever addressed and you're still having symptoms, please go find somebody to find that driving factor for you. And when it comes to the visual things, who should somebody be looking for? Because of course there's gonna be people listening that are in different countries that you know they can't come and see you, they can't come and see me. Um, what type of provider are, should they be looking for? So, I mean, you can start with, if we're just talking about spatial issues, um, and like, I know this is, we hear this a lot, it depends on the provider. You might find a great provider that kind of does everything. So you might find a neuroautometrist that doesn't help you. So you've just got to explore in your area. I would say find an EDS provider in your area and ask them. Ask them who they use for their eyes. Mm -hmm. um, you can just start with a regular visual exam just to see, and this is, a, I had this, I had my mind blown last week when somebody had told me this um, about, this was just the visual piece last week. And I tell everybody to move their eyes. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I haven't thought of this. That's why I love learning things I don't know. Um, but then I had the thought that, um, well, when somebody is whatever sighted, they're handed their glasses and they're told, wear these when. Typically, a lot of people are told to wear their glasses when they're reading, when they're on a computer screen, when they're trying to see far distance, your eyes don't care what you're doing. Your <laughs> eyes are constantly absorbing the field around you. So if you have a body that has difficulty finding stability, please go find an eye doctor that you can talk to about, shouldn't I be wearing these glasses all the time if my eyes can't figure this out? So, you know, it's really finding just the provider that's willing to listen and maybe just trial some things with you. Um, and then if not, maybe we do send you to a neurooptometrist that can look into some of those things. Um, sometimes going to see a visual rehab physical therapist to see if you have mm -hmm. a convergence or a divergence issue as well. Like, are we really seeing that this is neurological with the eyes because of something that that's happened before. Um, so there just know that there's a lot of options. There's a lot of options. I would say if you could find somebody, you know, vision rehab, or just a standard, somebody willing to open open to talk about the eyes as an eye doctor, that would be great. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we talked about sometimes it's in the pelvis. Sometimes it's in the lower extremities. Sometimes it's in the visual system. Another thing that you've talked to me about that I would love for you to explain to the listeners is tongue tie. Oh, yes. 
Um, so tongue tie. So tongue tie is, um, it sounds very localized. It's actually not. So um, it's the fascia that actually it does connect um, your tongue to some of the, the external fascial structures that we have around that area. But fascia is, is one piece in the body. It's literally all connected. So when we say tongue tie, yes, there's this component that's in this anterior neck issue and underneath the jaw, but it goes all the way down through the front chain of the body, all the way into the pelvis and into the legs. So I will say, while we still don't fully understand why people are having symptomatic tongue tie, you could have symptomatic tongue tie and have no idea that's the cause of your symptoms because we've adapted so maladapted so well um, to we're just so great at finding um, ways to compensate in our body. We're amazing at that. So we might never know that there's, you know, this jaw and face area again, this this tongue region, it's going to continuously contribute to the position of the upper cervical spine. Also, if you think about that fascial chain that runs in the front of the body, when it we'll call it tightens because fascia doesn't really tighten. Um, but when it becomes restricted for whatever reason, whether that's inflammation, genetics, whatever it might be, if you have a true tongue tie and you have that tight anterior fascial chain, it is going to pull your head forward. So mm -hmm. it is going to pull C0 forward on C1. And God forbid you have any jaw issues or anything else that adds a little rotation to it and can further feed into the instability that's present. So it could be a contributing factor of a number of different things. Um, it's certainly, I'll say, an exacerbating factor. So if anybody out there is dealing with upper cervical instability, in, in my practice, um, if I have any suspicions, if we think there's upper cervical instability, I want to know about your jaw. I want to know about your vision. I want to get you checked for a tongue tie so you can start oral myofunctional therapy. So um, it's not a lot of, like, it's, it's some of me. <laughs> but there are, there's other people to see that can be such a wealth of, um, of valuable treatment input for these patients as well. And you had mentioned the mast cell piece too, and I and I and I meant to say when we were talking about that that I've definitely found in my patients if we get the mast cells under better control that joint stability improves everywhere in the body usually, and and I was not really a believer at first um, when I first opened my practice and I kind of heard about mast cell I I didn't. I didn't really appreciate the percentage of people that were impacted by that. And then I would say probably only about a year ago, I started, uh, I was preparing to give a talk at a mast cell conference. And, you know, you learn a lot when you prepare to give a talk, right? So I was pre preparing to give this talk and I was like, oh, wow, I think maybe I should start really working more on this mast cell thing and people with persistent pain. And since I started changing my approach, I definitely think that that's really helped a lot of people and with the joint stability, which is obviously super important. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, so much. That's what I, you know, I, I tell people all the time, you can hop on my table if you want, but you might not want to pay the money until we come down the, the, the inflammatory response, because we're not going to have the results that you think, um, because it's going to cause abnormal tissue response. It absolutely will. And yeah, we're not quite sure why it tends to localize in certain areas of the spine, but certainly the upper cervical spine, this craniocervical junction is an area for it. There might be some sort of neuroimmune thing that's going on there, like neurologically, mm -hmm. um, might be more of an epicenter. So that's where, like, it's like a chicken or the egg scenario. That's why it's so important to have these conversations, because was this something that's been de developing over time because of an inflammatory response? or because of one of the, the other things that we've talked about. So I always tell people, you know, don't worry, you're already working on it. You're working on mast cell stuff, that's great. Lower the inflammation, because we'd have to do that at some point anyway. So you've already got one foot up, that's wonderful. And I think a lot of people do, uh, we're, like you said, we are very adaptable. And I think most of us are perfectionists or a lot of us, you know, we, we tend to be hard on ourselves. And so I think, it's very important for a lot of people to get that kind of encouragement because they might go to other appointments and they're told, oh, if you, if you fall short at all, it's like you're not even trying. And it's like, no, that, that's not it. People don't realize how incredibly hard it is to be somebody with chronic illness, how incredibly difficult it is. That's what, and that's what I try to change the language a little bit. And I know that um, people are suffering. This is really hard to live mm -hmm. with. And I know mm -hmm. that. But also think about the amount that your body puts up with every day. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. So it might not seem strong, but it is, it's very <laughs> adaptable. 
And for what it's going through, it's doing a lot. It might not be doing the right things yet, but it it really is. It's holding on to quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Getting back to tongue tie for a minute, what patients in particular do you refer out for evaluation for tongue tie? I'll tell you the ones that I really want to get checked out for tongue tie, um, especially because I don't have another answer yet. I'm going to put it that way because my, my answer, we're learning so much about this. It might change in another two years or so, but my patients that are having intracranial pressure issues. So there's a, there's a fascial component about things being compressed in the head moving forward and things being squished in there. So I've just, I've seen an improvement in headaches and intracranial pressure and that brain pressure sensation when it's paired with upper cervical instability, when somebody has oral myofunctional therapy, or if they need a tongue tie release. And to find out if you need one, you would see an oral myofunctional therapist. And I will throw out there, there is a lot of debate whether or not we should be releasing tongues um, in patients that are unstable. So what I will say is that I don't have that conversation with my patients that have severe instability unless it's well thought out and they have a team and we have everything planned and it's appropriate for them. But that's a rare conversation I have when there's severe instability present. However, if you have mild to moderate instability present, I think the conversation can be had as to is this a best approach for the person that has also instability because I, and what I tell my patients is I would never let you have a tongue tie release unless you were talking to me and we were doing proprioceptive exercises and working on alignment. And like, they have homework, they have homework to make that procedure work for them. Mm -hmm. And just like any procedure that's ever done, I always say, look, it's an opportunity. It's not a guarantee. It's an opportunity (laughs) so that we can start working out of something. But if we Mm -hmm. don't continue to work, it's not going to work. I love that. When I had my Tarlov cyst surgery, that is exactly how I viewed it, but I didn't quite word it like that, that it was an opportunity, not a guarantee. Yeah. That's, that's really, really smart. When it comes to um, intracranial pressure, are you thinking more high pressure, low pressure either? Um, <laughs> with tongue tie. T- with tongue tie, typically it's a high pressure response and we could have a, we can have another day of chatting about <laughs> pressure strategies and, and what the correlation might be, because we do have some more, more information recently on that. Um, but really, it's more of the high pressure. It's, it's that kind of feel awful all the time. Nothing's really helping. Lots of pressure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And another thing that you mentioned briefly that I would like to uh, circle back to as we're getting close to wrapping up here, you mentioned regenerative medicine. And I was um, curious if you would share a little bit more about your experience with, with your patients and, um, and what they've experienced. Yeah. So again, a little bit spoiled in the area. We do have some incredible um, centers for regenerative medicine around us locally, um, but also uh, there's some around the nation as well. And some people do fly out. Um, now, I, I hear the controversy of they should be able to see anyone in regenerative medicine. Um, and then the other side of, well, they really have to see somebody that understands symptomatic hypermobility. And I'll tell you, it depends on the patient. The patients that come into my office, I will be honest, I would want you seeing somebody that had a Benadryl IV drip ready because these specialists do, because they know that sometimes, hey, they're gonna have a weird wonky response. So I want, I want that provider to be able to cater care um, and that typically comes with somebody that understands the condition. So there, there aren't many out there. What I have seen um, is amazing outcomes if you figure out the cause. <laughs> so if you're going in because you want to stabilize that area, and we are also working on what is leading to that presentation, I have seen some amazing outcomes with people. If you go in thinking that regenerative medicine in and of itself is going to completely change everything, you ended up there for a reason. Your spine is in that position for a reason. We absolutely, and sometimes it is just orthopedic and somebody has to realign you and inject and you're good. Um, typically it's not. <laughs> typically there, we have to know these factors that you know I talked about before. And it's, like I said, it's such a long list of what it could be, but you just have to see somebody that has open eyes and can figure out what your individual problem is and just make sure that you're addressing it around the regenerative therapy as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we definitely need more data about that too. And that's really, really challenging. So yeah. 
Um, what do you think in terms of the percentage of your patients who recover sufficiently from upper cervical instability so that they do not need surgery? Yeah, um, that's a tough question for me because I've only made, I, and I see a lot of people with upper cervical instability. And this is where it gets a little confusing because I've only referred three people out for consults who have not had surgery, but just to be monitored and checked because they were quite unstable. Um, if you talk to Susan Chalela, who deals with, you know, she works very closely with Dr. Patel, her number is going to be very different. Mm -hmm. um, I talked to another provider out in California and, you know, we've, we've talked to other people and we kind of had this conversation and it's, if we look at the grand scheme of things, that whole spectrum, mild to severe, we're typically seeing 95% of our patients not need any sort of surgical intervention to, to stabilize, that they can do well with rehab techniques. But also, we're the people that are looking at the mild, like right away. So again, it's really hard to give that number. But I would say, if you go see a person that has the skills to help you, 95% of the people that are going to come in and out of that office probably do not need surgery. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And what do you wish that I had asked you that I didn't ask? Or was there anything else you want? <laughs> <laughs> it was, we had gotten to the, cause I get asked all the time, like, why doesn't my C1 stay in place? Or, you know, just the comment, it doesn't stay in place. And that's what I just wanted to reiterate through our talk too. So I'm glad that we, we elaborated on some of the concepts too, is that it's really important to find out why you're unstable period. Like mm -hmm. you, you can work on the stability itself, but um, I love my patients, but at some point I don't want you to come back. <laughs> I'd really like to figure out what the thing is that's causing the presentation of your symptoms. And that's probably true for everything. I mean, if you get to the root cause, you're going to have a much more successful outcome than if you are just, you know, putting a bandaid, which I think is part of the problem with most medical practices and most physical therapy pra or a lot of physical therapy practices where visits are a lot shorter. And so they're not really able to look for root causes and, and try to address those. Absolutely. Yep. All right. Um, so I always like to ask everyone for their favorite hypermobility hack. Do you have any hypermobility hacks that you can share with us? I have a ton, but I'm going to start <laughs> with this because I'd like to continue this in a, in a future conversation. You have to unhinge from the thoracolumbar junction. So that area is where the diaphragm is. Please stop collapsing on top of it. Please stop. <laughs> See, and I, it's funny because whenever I tell my patients I'm in that position, I'm like, oh, darn. So um, it can lead to a lot of different problems in people. Um, so open that area up. It opens the diaphragm up. We can get into why the diaphragm is so important at another time. But um, that in itself, we actually, that movement we recommend with a number of different coexisting conditions that exist with EDS. So we do not want you to hinge at that joint. Please do not collapse at the diaphragm at the lower part of the ribs. And I, I tell people to, like, don't worry about, like sitting and correcting it, you know, it doesn't have to be active. If you're first trying to work on it, how do you lay down on the couch? How do you lay down in a recliner chair? Can you open that up there? Be passive first, be passive first. Be as, <laughs> like I always like to start as lazy as possible until somebody's feeling better to be able to do these things actively. But that would be, and again, we can have more conversations <laughs> on the why that's so important, but please stop crushing your diaphragms. And where can people find you online? elevationwellness.co. Um, we do have uh, some other stuff coming out in the future that we're trying to put together just to get some more education out for, for patients. But for now, that's my clinic site. So um, not too much information on there outside of me, but that's where I am. Okay, great. Well, I'm so excited that we finally got to have our first conversation. <laughs> it was a very long time coming. So hopefully the second conversation will happen a lot faster than this first one did. In terms, of, uh, in terms of getting that scheduled. So it was so great to chat with you and I'm so grateful to you for, for coming on and sharing your wisdom with the listeners. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I just, I appreciate being able to kind of expand on the topics and you mm -hmm. know, this is how we're gonna learn as somebody else knows more than me about something that we just talked about and they're gonna run with it. It's gonna be great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what I really enjoy about doing this because I get to talk to incredibly smart people who are all, you know, it's like the, um, that Indian, uh, I don't know if it's a, 
it, it might be a fable or something with the elephant, right? And we're all touching a different part. And so I, you know, everyone touches a different part of the person with symptomatic joint hypermobility and it addresses things in a little different way. And so I love getting to talk to people who are trying different things and seeing different things and have different expertise. It really, really helps all of us, I think, to be able to provide better care when we can learn from a lot of different people. Yeah. And thank you for putting this all together. Really. You're, you're very, very welcome. Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD podcast. Help us spread the word about joint hypermobility and related disorders by leaving a review and sharing the podcast. This really helps raise awareness about these complex conditions. Visit BendyBodiesPodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at Bendy underscore bodies. We love seeing your posts and stories. So be a buddy and engage our community by using the hashtag BendyBuddy. That's hashtag B-E-N-D-Y-B-U-D-D-Y. You can also find me, Dr. Linda Bluestein, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn at HypermobilityMD. This podcast is for general purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. This is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice or diagnosis. Do not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition you have. The opinions shared are that of the guest and do not necessarily represent the views of the host or any particular organization. Sponsorship of the podcast does not necessarily mean an endorsement. Thank you for being a part of our community and we'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.